I'm Andrew Weinrich, and I'm here with Jeremy Levy. This is Deciding by Data. Each week, we will interview a leader in a different space and explore with them how they have leveraged data and analytics to build and transform their organization, bringing you the inside story behind the growth of successful data-driven businesses. Today, we will be speaking with Pyle Kadakia, the founder and executive chairwoman of ClassPass a monthly membership program that provides people of all fitness levels access to boutique fitness classes and gyms across the world. I first met Pyle before she started ClassPass, when she asked me to become an advisor for her company under the precursor name, Clastivity. Since ClassPass launched in 2013, it has facilitated over 40 million reservations across 8,500 studios in 39 cities globally. A brief disclaimer before we jump into this conversation. We had some technical difficulties recording this interview over Skype. Nonetheless, we thought this rich conversation was still worth sharing with our listeners. We hope you'll enjoy. I'd love if we could start with the vision of ClassPass, taking us all the way back to Classtivity. Great. Yeah. So it really started, you know, the whole company started out of a pain point of mine, which was just searching for a ballet class online. And in that moment, I think obviously like there was the technological gap that existed, but more importantly, it was to connect people back to their passions and things that sort of make them feel alive. And, you know, when we're younger, a lot of us have a chance to keep exploring, you know, pursue our our passions from being active to creative. And I wanted to create a place where people could continue to pursue that side of themselves. So our goal is really to understand how data has driven you from the earliest inception of your vision to where we are now. So I'd love it if we could talk about what the initial product of Clastivity looked like, and then we can drill down a little bit about what the feedback was on that product and the the data points you were receiving on that product. The first website we had, it was a search engine, so very similar to OpenTable, where we aggregated thousands of class-level details. Some of it was bookable immediately from the website. So it was really just a search engine for classes. And the initial price point? So it was by class. So every class had a different price point based upon what the studios or providers charged. So it ranged anywhere from $5 to $45 per transaction. There was an initial $99 product. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. So, okay. So you're, you're actually fast-forwarding to ClassPass. What I also wanted to just say is with Clastivity in terms of data and knowing it didn't work. And I think that's also just a really important thing of knowing how far off we were. We had 10,000 people coming to the website and no one was going to class. Um, that was sort of, for me, a pretty important point to know, hey, this isn't working and for us to build another product. So then we actually launched another product called the Passport. And the Passport was a $49 offer where you could try 10 classes. You had to be a new member at each of the studios you were going to class to, and you could try it for one month. So what's really interesting was there was a vision for what you were going to do for individuals. And then separately, there was a vision for what you were going to do for the studios, right? Yeah. I mean, in any marketplace, the number one thing is is making sure like transactions are happening, right? There's got to be liquidity. And without liquidity, no marketplace exists. And that's really, to me, what we were always trying to get to is a place where people were actually reserving classes. And that, that's really what took us, you know, three to four years to get into. But the initial vision was, and this is the part I think that surprised so many people, that 
people are comfortable doing one type of class. And so they would join a Pilates studio, they would join a yoga studio. And no one really before you had said that diversity of classes was a value. That was the that was the central underpinning for the participants, right? Absolutely. And and we actually stumbled upon that. So and I think this is what's what's amazing that we realized. So when we had the passport product, which was the month-long discovery, we thought people would do the dabbling and the variety for a month and then commit to a studio. And our internal metric was that 75% of people who gave, you know, a class a four or five rating because we were collecting reviews on every class would then go and buy a package at the studio. We only saw that number at 15%. And when we saw such a low conversion, we first of all knew that, hey, this would be a really bad partnership for the studios because we're not, they're giving us these classes for free and we're not now giving them any clientele, right? That's going to actually convert. So that was problem A. And then problem B for me from a mission standpoint was, wait, this is going to be a product that's only going to be in people's lives for a month. It didn't feel as compelling. That being all said, so those were two problems. The beauty of the passport was what we realized separately was how much people loved the variety. So they loved it so much so that what started happening is they were, people were signing up with multiple email addresses month over month. And the way obviously the product worked is you were restricted in being able to sign up for the same studio. The studio started calling us saying, hey, I saw, you know, this person again, I thought they couldn't come back. And we were like, they can't. And then we started looking at the user emails. We started realizing that they were signing up with multiple email addresses. So now we were like, okay, wait, people want to pay us more money. What's going on? So then we did a survey, sent it out to the members who are on the passport. And we asked them if they would, if they could go back to their, you know, their studios that they liked a few more times would they sign up for this monthly? And 95% of them said yes. That's when we knew we had to build a subscription. So the initial mission was offer a program or offer a path for people to achieve their fitness ambitions, but it was never offer them a path to get this diversity of choice. Is that right? Well, it was offer them an easy way to start exploring boutique fitness and then find your home, right? We just thought people would ultimately find their home after because that's the way everything worked like you couldn't like you said dabble this way before class pass existed the only other way to really do that was the gym so like the model just didn't exist so no one really knew how to do this so forget you know knowing if people were interested but it was really about hey if you discover you'll find the place you want to stick to what's so interesting about the pivot is oftentimes you see a company try something it fails and then the founder says we still have some cash. Let's just try something else. Here, you tried something which was based on lead gen, driving people to the studios, as you put it, so they could find a home. And as opposed to pie in the sky, let's try something else. It sounds like it was really the data that was driving this decision that people really did want variety and they wanted subscription. Absolutely. I mean, you know, given since you've been involved in the company, you know, we had our first pivot, which to me was a, like a very massive pivot because we were going to offering a complete new customer proposition. You know, this, I mean, to me was just another iteration of what, of the program we started with, with the passport. We just didn't realize that people would love discovery so much. And I, I totally agree. It was, it was in 
it was in the data and the other thing, like I always, you know, think it's so important. It was in the emails that our customers were writing us. So, you know, at this time, like most of the team was doing all the customer service and you could hear it in people's like emails essentially. And then that how much they loved the variety and that was what gave them the confidence and the motivation to keep working out. And that's something that they hadn't ever felt before. I'm curious about, because I think a lot of people deal with this issue of, of facing a pivot when something doesn't go exactly as they, as they wanted to. Was people creating fake email addresses, was that principally because they were capped on the number of classes they could take at any one place? Or was that the subscription business model of these studios is just fundamentally broken? That No, so, so, so they were, the thing is, the product we offered was a one-month product. So it wasn't a subscription for the first seven months. It was a one month product. And then we were get, we were trying to get them to buy a package at each of the studios. So in that one month, we, they only could try Passport for a month. ClassPass didn't exist at that point. So they were frauding us in the sense that they were buying that one month over and over again to keep going back to studios because it, it was, it was just a 30 day product. That was all it was. And they had to be new at each studio. I want to turn to the data on the studios in a second, but I imagine there's a lot of interesting zeitgeist on the data. Like, does, do New York City people like to spin more than Chicago people? Yeah, we've, we've seen a lot of trends. I mean, I think what's really crazy is like ClassPass with how could we kind of sit above the entire market. Like, there's lots of trends that start and new trends that, you know, begin on any, any other day. And we kind of sort of fill the volume at a holistic level. So we kind of sit above that. But at the same time, like we do, and a lot of this is, you know, if there's outdoor classes or if there's indoor, we see a lot of like spin in Boston and strength training in New York, you know, and we do see a lot of those uh, types of trends. Are there other uses for that data over time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, we're not heavy right now in the apparel space or anything like that, but I do think like knowing what people do with working out, especially because there's so much of an emphasis today on working out, like just knowing what products people will need. I think there will be a massive use for, for the data. It's obviously not our, our priority currently. How far can you go on driving personalization? I mean, if someone says to you, I know, I know most of the people that use ClassPass are the most fit people in the world, but eventually you'll have people that say, I'm looking to lose weight, or I'm wondering whether you can take it to that level and say, wow, I know you've been doing a lot of yoga and Pilates. Maybe you need to think more about a high intensity workout. And so we can recommend this for you. Yeah, we have, we have so much of that data in house at this point. And we, we've started building a recommendation algorithm. It's always important to make sure, you know, for us, like people love working out. So as long as they get to class, like that to us is the number one thing we got, we have to, we focus on is what's going to be the easiest way to get you to class. And, you know, even We've seen recommendations do well. We've seen the social graph people have and having recommendations from friends be one of the biggest drivers. But I'm wondering whether the recommendations eventually go a step further, whether or not someone's developing soreness in their shoulders and whether there's greater interactivity on, uh, on the data you're abstracting from these people and the recommendations get to a place where it's, here's what you need to do to round out your fitness objectives. Here's what you need to do to round out your health objectives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're constantly adding new variables and, you know, seeing how they perform and based on people's goals, we're actually developing a lot of that right now. Can you describe or characterize the, the business models of these boutiques, you know, how profitable they are, how strapped they are, how they think about their inventory? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, I think it's it's hard to generalize because there's they're so different. Like there's really a distribution of the types of studios we work with. That being said, I think the premise that we started this on and the, you know, the studios that we worked with in the beginning, a lot of them were, you know, I would, I would consider them like entrepreneur led sort of like one stop places or one studio places where, you know, most of the time they were, you know, at 50 to 60% excess capacity right? In terms of their utilization. Once again, these were things that not many of our studios knew early on. I remember actually spending most of my time in the early days trying to build utilization curves for them because it was something that even the industry just didn't really think about before. You know, they have fixed costs, but it is really important to try and fill incremental spots, right? And develop, get that incremental revenue. So a lot of our proposition to them from the passport was, we will fill your excess capacity so much so that I remember in the early days too, we would, you know, the onboarding that we had with them, we would explicitly ask them, you know, how many spots do you want to give us in your classes? And we would do it at a class level if we needed to. And many of them would say like, just take it like a hundred percent, but we didn't want a hundred percent because we didn't want to cannibalize. And if they have, you know, loyalists going to their studio we wanted to make sure we weren't taking away any spots from those people. You walk into this beautiful studio and you assume that someone has a nice lifestyle business. Are most of them on the cusp of not having enough, not having enough revenue to survive? Are they month to month? I mean, how do how do we think about the viability of of all of these studios? And there seems like there's been this massive proliferation of them over the past 10 to 20 years? How do we think about their viability? Look, I think a lot of it has to do with product. Like I actually think about it very similar to the way tech startups are. Like there are some of them that have a product that's like super viral and and attracts a lot of people and those like get off the ground and, you know, and even ClassPass today, like we even help them get off the ground and open up new locations. And as they start opening up new locations, they have more synergies and are able to push costs down. That being said, there's also, you know, others that I think, you know, sometimes they have too much rent or they, you know, you have to manage it like a very small business, right? You need to make sure your rent, your staff, like all the people that you have hired, you're paying them what you need to, but then the projections that you have for people coming in can really help cover that. But it's not how many of these studio owners think, right? Like it's just, it's one of those things that they want people in the door because they're so passionate about what they do. I don't think that many of them are unprofitable, but I don't think many of them have like this abundance of a cash flow. Does OpenTable provide a level of analytics for the restaurants to help them manage towards profitability? I, I don't know their exact system for the restaurants, but I mean, I mean, I'm assuming with how integrated they are, there's no way that the restaurant tours aren't learning from, you know, what's going on with OpenTable. And I even remember that's part of their OpenTable sell would be, you know, we would send you X amount of people, which would provide you X amount of revenue per month. And I'm sure they're getting that data and sharing it back to the restaurant. What's interesting is I would think, you know, everyone basically has dinner at the same time, but you can work out, I imagine, at any time of the day. I, I would think ClassPass could provide such a incredible level of analytics to the studio to the point where here are the classes that are working. If you time shift them, if you expand capacity. Oh, Mike, we already do that. Yeah, we actually, and we provide a report, like a, literally an annual report for this for our studios that actually takes together the high, like the best trends. So we've learned things where if you have 
like a 50 minute class, it performs better than like a 60 minute class, like just random data points like that, that have been able to really shift them. The most important thing though, for them has been the ratings and the reviews that we're able to send them on a teacher level, which is so impactful to them. You know, they can actually change that. Right. And this goes back to what I was saying about fixing your product, right? Like if, how is for any startup, like, you know, how to fix your product based upon what people are saying. Right. And we're giving them that insight right away. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, I'll ask Pyle about how ClassPass is changing the fitness landscape and about the company's controversial end to its unlimited plan. Stay tuned. This podcast is brought to you by Indicative, the leading behavioral analytics platform that allows business users to optimize acquisition, engagement, and retention. Indicative enables marketing and product teams to do sophisticated behavioral analysis across all of their customers' digital touchpoints without the need to rely on data scientists. To learn more, go to indicative.com or email info at indicative.com. Welcome back to Deciding by Data. We're here with Pyle Kadakia, founder and executive chairwoman of ClassPass, the membership-based company that lets you sign up for boutique classes at a discounted rate. Pyle and I were just talking about how ClassPass provides its studios with useful data on their customers. Now I want to dive deeper into how ClassPass is changing the fitness industry. Have you gotten to the place yet, or is this maybe maybe several years out where, where studios are able to say, before ClassPass, this was our revenue, this was our profitability, and this is now with ClassPass, here's the differential on a studio basis. I know you don't have access to all of their data, but I'm wondering whether there's there's some way where you complete that loop. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're obviously, you know, our number one thing is to grow the market, right? And so we're obviously, every once in a while, we try and do like a case study on um, a subset of studios. Like I said, a lot of our studios are new. And I think back to your earlier question, they're in very different stages, right? Like we have startup studios and then we have the big studios, right? So it's sometimes like for us, it's about focusing in on making sure that we're growing the pie and introducing new people who weren't necessarily going to any of these studios before versus just cannibalizing the current traffic that's really going through. Once again, it's still hard to pinpoint it by any individual studio because there's a shift and a mix going on within ClassPass and then there's a shift and a mix going on outside of ClassPass in these studios already. I'm not going to ask you, obviously, how much you pay the studios, but I'm curious whether or not the studios and the individuals each understand the other's pain points. In other words, individuals understand that this is excess capacity, so you're acquiring classes at a discount, and whether studios understand the pain points of the individuals. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting to, I guess, asking the question about the class pass at one point offered in an unlimited package where you paid a fixed price and you could go to as many classes as you want. And it, it seemed like there was this disconnect where individuals didn't appreciate the pain points of the studios and studios didn't appreciate the pain points of the individuals. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and whether you think there's this sense of, of understanding how the whole ecosystem works by the different parties. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a great point. As a founder, I was trying to get people who are scared of boutique fitness to walk in, which means these are not people who know what the price of these studios are, right? By just by nature of who we were targeting. It's easy for people to be like, don't people know that these classes are like, you know, $35 or 
And I understand that, but at the same time, then there was this entire user base who was completely just scared, right? Like, of, I don't know how to walk into Barry's boot camp or new spin class. Like I've never done spin in my life. So we were always trying to remain accessible and, and in a way package something together that felt more exciting than any like individual workout because the individual workout was scary to people. Then on the flip side, I do think, you know, for the studios, like they look, every person is, it's, it's so important to make sure that, you know, I, I, even the cancellation fee we have where if you miss a class, you get charged through late cancel because at the end of the day, to me, the number one thing for them is spots, right? It's like if they have 10 spots, and all of a sudden you tell them you can't make it and they were banking on you being there. It's like an unfilled spot, right? That could have been taken by somebody else. And to me, that's like an opportunity cost that they're constantly playing with. And it was important to sort of start and we're, we're doing a better job of it even now, but training our customers on the fact that even that we don't charge that fee because class S is trying to be greedy. We charge that fee out of a principle of protecting our studios, right? So there's always this, this two-sided marketplace dynamic. Here's the one thing. I'm really glad we made it really easy, but sometimes like there, it is good to add friction because it helps people be disciplined and educate them on the two sides of the marketplace. It's the same thing like Uber now will charge you. If, if you're a rider, you know, if you make them wait for two minutes, they can cancel. Like there's little things like that you have to do as you grow to help enable the respect on both sides of the marketplace. Yeah. How, how much are you comfortable talking about the, the $99 and then that was that fee was raised for unlimited? What's so interesting is a lot of businesses start and they get sort of the bottom of the barrel users. You got the best of the best. And those best of the best, in one sense, I know you don't like to refer to them as abusers, but can you talk about how large a percentage of the user base was going to so many classes that ClassPass was losing money on on them. Well, so it's 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 a always a hard a hard situation in the sense of you know when we actually first started and we were we actually started at nine nine for ten, those users were actually going on average to five, right? So like we didn't actually start at with the with like these crazy users. If anything, we were like, how do we get them to go more? Because we we could see that the people who weren't using the product would turn out, right? So the thinking was, if they're only going to five, we can offer unlimited. It's a great market. It's a great marketing ploy and it costs us nothing. Exactly. So that's actually, so we did a summer promotion. And then, you know, I mean, there was a lot that happened. You know, there was a lot of that, you know, we raised funding, there was copycats in the market, there was a lot going on. At the time, it was just a shift. Like growth was the number one priority for us. The other thing we started doing at this time is, you know, the other thing in a marketplace is you usually think your cost would go down if you get volume, right? Correct? Like that's what usually happens. Yep. Um, we started attracting a lot of the top studios. So our costs were actually then going up too on a per class basis because we started adding amazing studios, right? So like some of these dynamics were all great for the product experience, right? But when you fast forward it, um, what was happening is we were ending up with like users who were engaging more and a per class cost that was going up, not down at the time. Right. And so, um, we like, once again, we knew we had to make a shift. And then the first shift we made was a 25 ish dollar price increase. And what actually, what happened, and we didn't know if we had been thinking and we want needed to test it is like the concept of adverse selection. If the people who end up, you know, staying on the product are the ones who are your higher usage, like you end up a price increase doesn't do anything then. And that's that's exactly what happened. And so then we decided I knew we'd have to go higher. 
but you know, I built this product for people who are scared, not like fitness fanatics. So it was important to me to have a price point and a plan in the market that felt more accessible. So then we started building the five pack um, and the 10 pack and we saw those do really well. Same thing, like the same way, like the company grew, we saw the same types of, of growth with them. But then once again, the adverse selection on the unlimited plan even got worse, right? So the people who stayed on the limited were going obviously above 10, because if you were go- if you were below 10, you would take the 10 pack, right? So we were then the, the average and unlimited, we had to actually push up to $200. And then at some point, same problem happened. And we ultimately decided to get rid of it. And I mean, I, I actually always remember this time in the company because it was it was one of those like times where my I walk into work and employees would come up to me with new ideas to figure out ways to get people to stop working out. Like that's ultimately what had happened. Like I remember I was doing a podcast in my team and they were like they were like, Oh, like how many times do you work out? I'm like, I work out every day. And they're like, Don't tell our members that. I'm like, what do you mean don't tell our members that? And I'm like, this is not good. Like this is not the reason we started this company. And I just knew that that's like what started happening. And so we had to make a shift. And, you know, ultimately, you know, what's been great is we lost less than 5% of our users from the that change. And we've actually have been growing in our new plans and our add-on bundles. So we actually have, people can still work out like as many times as they want. It's just the usage and the economics are just more aligned now. Now they have to pay for it. Yeah, they just pay. I mean, there's there's bundles that they can constantly keep adding to their membership. So just for my own edification, was the extreme once a day that people were working out or was there a core of people that were, were going to multiple classes a day every day? Um, there was a, I mean, the distribution was very, was very varied. Um, I can't remember the exact specifics at that time. I mean, at the end of the day, we just we definitely had a bunch of people who were bringing the margin down. Do you think of ClassPass now as a data-driven business? Yes, absolutely. When you think about the prioritizations going forward, if you had to rank growth, revenue, retention, how do you rank those? I would say retention, growth. I mean, all of them. <laughs> retention, growth, uh, revenue. How many cities is ClassPass in? 39. How do you view, for a company at your stage, the role of venture financing? And ClassPass just did a huge financing but if we were at a different time, would the financing have been 10 times that and the mandate, you know, if we were in the late 90s, would the mandate have been grow at all costs, knock out, you know, the largest gyms? I think it was like that two years ago. I don't, I don't think it was even just the 90s, you know. I think the markets are different. And once again, I, I don't take it as it's like a negative or a positive. I just think people, there's different, the corrections happen at the times they need to, right? And I, you know, I would say there was a phase where everyone was like, it was grow at all costs. And there was a phase we had to grow at all costs, right? We had a lot of copycats in the market and we had to just make sure this was our product and it was ours to lose at the end of the day. We invented it. And, you know, luckily even for us, like, I think we, we got to that other side, I would say before the markets turned, you know, and then, then for us, the number one thing, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you have to always remember, especially with a subscription, it's so important to, you could always acquire new people, but you have to keep the people you have, right? So it's like, it's a really important thing to make sure you're constantly getting more money and like more of a better experience from your current subscribers, um, which we're also investing in. And at the same time, then figuring out growth. I would say though, with the, with the raise we just did, I would say we're focused on both growth and retention. 
A few more questions. How do you decide what markets to go after from here, it, geographic markets? The number one thing we usually do is look at number of studios that are in there because without the studios, we don't really have a product. The other thing we've obviously also looked at is English speaking just for right now, because obviously like changing languages adds a huge amount of complexity. That's sort of been like our current focus. And, you know, if there's studios, we assume that there is an active culture. How many studios do you need in a city to, in an urban area for it to be meaningful? We actually do this analysis by zip code. So it's actually, it's even more detailed because you have to make sure it's about location. And we actually, you know, do our marketing in that way too. But usually it's somewhere, we usually like to launch with around 50 studios. So are there, are there hundreds of more markets that have in English speaking parts of the world that have 50 or more studios in close proximity? Or is there an order of mag? I'd say there's probably somewhere around like, you know, 40 to 50. I would say that are English speaking, but that doesn't mean we wouldn't a go, you know, we wouldn't go towards the non-English speaking ones. And in general, I think, you know, class class, like ethos of bringing like studio fitness everywhere. I mean, we can a create the market where we need to, or, you know, we're also working on a large digital product and endeavor because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. We want to make it so it doesn't matter where you are. Tell me about the digital, the streaming product. It very much reminds me of like Netflix going from like DVDs to streaming. You know, you have to kind of keep up with what's going on in the world around you. Like, I, I don't know if five years ago I would have been like, oh, yeah, well, ClassPass will obviously be like, a you know, have a video platform and where people will connect to like, you know, our workouts that way. But now, I mean, that people are. And I think it's, it's you know, we're really excited about a lot of the new technology being invented and, and sort of getting people engaged at, in their own home. And so it's a really interesting way of bringing the class class experience into the homes of everyone around the world. So it'll be less of a local marketplace. The whole Peloton experience, frankly, shocked me because I didn't appreciate why, why you would want to work out from home, why you would just watch a YouTube video, what the value was of it being current. But is that what you're seeing on the streaming side, that people are more excited about a class that's offered today as opposed to one that's... Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, like, I think we see live and interactive as a really important piece of it. It's, 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 it and it's not just, it, it's because, like, that's how a class is at the end of the day, right? You have other people there. It's an experience. It's someone is holding you accountable. Why? Like, if I work out at home or if I go to the studio, you always push yourself a little bit more at the studio because there's like other people there, right? And there's an instructor there and they can connect with you and see, you know, see how you're performing. So it helps add to the workout. What else did I not ask you? What else can you tell us about ClassPass's plans for the future? Any other verticals? I mean, I think, you know, ClassPass in general, I also like to me, boutique fitness is one part of it. Like I think we'll, you know, we're already offering things of like the gym and run and, you know, sports games. So it's really about, we want to help people with their entire fitness sort of journey. And I think what we've realized is that it changes over time. Like it's, that's what actually keeps people engaged and excited because people fall out of routine all the time. And so, yeah, we're continuing expanding into other adjacencies in the active space. So is there a natural convergence with wearables and nutrition and class pass? Or do, do we think about those in the future still as, as separate verticals? Um, you know, I, I don't think we'll be, we're not that tied to nutrition, if that makes sense. I think it's going to be more about like class pass being a place for you to track all, you know, if you're booking all the things that you're doing on class pass, 
you might want to know how you performed, right? So if we were a place where you could log your something that happened on one of your fitness trackers and keep track of it over time. So pretend you went to the same class again and this time you perform better. Being able to track that in one place versus 40 is a lot easier. But I think it'll be very much tied to like the goals and programmatic way of working out that you'll see, you know, us integrate with other with other wearables or other, you know, data centric uh, activity trackers. Pyle, uh, we've had lots of conversations, none, none is an interview, but thank you. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Deciding My Data. I'm Andrew Weinrich. My co-host is Jeremy Levy. This podcast was produced and edited by Lauren Feiner and Esmeralda Martinez. Our music is by Chris Zabriskie. New episodes are released each week. Tune in next week when we speak with Dennis Mortensen, co-founder and CEO of X.AI, the AI-powered personal assistant that schedules your meetings for you. Dennis lays out where the line falls between artificial intelligence and other technologies and why it takes millions of dollars in funding to build his product. This is Deciding by Data. This podcast is brought to you by Indicative, the leading behavioral analytics platform that allows business users to optimize acquisition, engagement, and retention. Indicative enables marketing and product teams to do sophisticated behavioral analysis across all of their customers' digital touch points. For more episodes of Deciding by Data, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app or visit decidingbydata.com to subscribe to our newsletter. If you like what you hear, don't forget to leave a review or follow us on Twitter at Deciding by Data.